Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Backing for business remains in place for now, but Rishi Sunak paves the way for tax rises ahead. I'm Heather Stewart, political editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. Today, we set out a plan to protect the jobs and livelihoods of the British people. But the promises that underpin that plan remain unchanged from those we pledged ourselves to 12 long months ago. Today, Rishi Sunak presented his much-awaited budget in the House of Commons. When he set the date, he must have hoped lockdown would be behind us and he could focus on the Tories' plans for levelling up the UK and building back better. But with weeks more ahead of staying at home, he was forced to extend many of the schemes that have kept businesses afloat for the past 12 months, including the costly furlough scheme. But at the same time, Sunak was keen to show he hasn't abandoned the Conservatives' reputation for being tough on the public finances. So he also paved the way for tax increases when the worst of the crisis is over. Can he pull off this tough balancing act? Or does the threat of tax increases risk choking off the recovery, as Labour has warned? And will he also be able to keep the government's promise to level up the country? All the while, the debate in number 10 is not just focused on the budget, but keeping the union intact, amid fears that Scottish independence could derail Boris Johnson's premiership. Chaos has engulfed the Prime Minister's union unit and its staffers are unable to sit still. So how does Johnson make sure he's not remembered as the man who lost the union? It's hard to believe it's a full two months since the Brexit transition period came to an end, but some are definitely feeling the effects more than others. Later on, my colleague Stephen Morris talks to the head of the food and drinks industry in Wales about why it's currently easier for the EU to import lamb from New Zealand than the UK. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, Rishi Sunak was all smiles as he carried that all-important red box from Downing Street to Parliament. As you can imagine, it's been a busy day trying to get to grips with the Chancellor's plans. So I'm lucky to have grabbed my colleague, The Guardian's economics correspondent, Richard Partington, for a quick chat about his thoughts on the budget. Richard, it's great to have you. I know it's a a super busy day, super busy day for both of us. Um, Before we even get to the budget, um, Rishi Sunak's branding uh, efforts reached new, even new heights this week, didn't they? We had these sort of extraordinary glossy videos put out in the in the run up to this today's statement. You know, stressing what a what a great year he's had. Exactly. I mean, even if a brand Rishi needed another makeover or you know yet further polishing to his image, there was more of it again at the start of this week with that video on social media. I mean, Keir Starmer even joked after the budget speech today that he expected to see the cost of it included in the budget documents. It was that kind of uh, flash. 
Yeah, I mean, he's he's certainly kind of um, making his mark at this moment in time. It's really interesting that he gets given this exposure by the Prime Minister. There's a, they've got an interesting relationship for who's who's in charge this week. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? There is a sense that this is Sunak's project, really, rather than Boris Johnson's project, isn't there? And certainly when it comes to tax increases, it feels as though that that's Rishi Sunak wanting to show that he's kind of balancing the books or making gestures toward balancing the books ra- rather than the Prime Minister, maybe. Definitely, as you as you say, I mean, um, Sunak has has you know been described as a fiscal hawk before. He's certainly somebody who would like to see tackling the the impact of the pandemic on the public finances as a as a greater priority. And I think it's been interesting how we had the prime minister setting out the unlocking roadmap last week, and then very much deferring the uh, the economic support measures and the the framing of of what happens next to the chancellor. Uh, entirely to his own uh, this week, but certainly, and you know, he was he was definitely wanting to be clear, saying to the public, "I want to level with you about the cost of this pandemic." And and this budget's probably most notable parts included quite a bit of tax raising measures. And those were tax increases on business, weren't they? And and but but not not immediately. Yes, predominantly tax raises on businesses. So increasing the rate of corporation tax to to 25%, uh, but from April 2023. So a couple of years time to allow the economic recovery from the pandemic to take hold. But it's really interesting that this comes from a Conservative Party that is not used to making this type of step. It's the first increase in corporation tax since uh, uh, Dennis Healy in the 1970s, uh, as the the OBR pointed out. And uh, that is pretty foreign territory for the Tory party, the traditionally low tax, low regulation party. So it'd be interesting to see how that's received by by his uh, his backbenches. Yeah. And he made the point, didn't he, that he wasn't going to uh, balance the books with spending cuts. That was, of course, what George Osborne uh, focused on when it, during his period of austerity in 2010. Is it true to say that Rishi Sunak is not cutting public spending? Uh, not at all. I mean, the bigger announcements on that were made back in uh, November last year when we had the spending review, when he announced the uh, uh, the freeze in public sector pay for all of those outside of the NHS uh, and cuts in international aid budget, which was, uh, you know, of course, hugely contentious at the moment. Uh, the big debates about funding for, for Yemen in particular, you know, taking the headlines today. And, and then also, you know, there were big question marks around what this budget does for for local authorities uh, and the funding that they have uh, and you know public services going forward it was something that he didn't want you know particularly to talk about in the budget speech but it is nonetheless there that this isn't you know, a particularly prosperous time for public spending um, going forward out of the pandemic and he barely mentioned the nhs did he or social care and also quite a lot of public servants are having their pay frozen aren't we, we aren't they of course we found that in in the spending review yeah, of course. And the the other element here that's important to mention is is universal credit. I mean, he has extended the twenty pound per week uplift in universal credit for uh, six months until the end of September. However, you know, people are, are you know very much hurting during this pandemic. Unemployment is rising, not by as much as first feared. Uh, but more and more people are requiring support from the state at this very difficult time. Uh, and analysis by organisations such as New Economics Foundation show that uh, that six-month increase isn't enough to stop hardship from rising and that there will be more than a million people living below what it takes to really make ends meet in modern Britain. So it's it's a difficult you know thing to have done for a society that is struggling. Yeah, and he'll he'll likely face that battle again, won't he, about extending that in September, because that will come at a a time when he's 
bringing some of these other support schemes to an end, won't it? So one of the big announcements was extending the furlough scheme, wasn't it, until the end of September? And quite a lot of the other sort of business support schemes are going on for now, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, business support schemes was probably the the dominant factor in this budget. And one criticism that he's already facing, particularly from the Labour benches, is that this isn't enough about um, you know the people at the at the end of the day. There isn't enough here to support workers. Um, it's mainly focused on business. The the furlough extension, I think, will be positively taken as something that you know is longer than was expected by some commentators out until September. Um, in the past, extensions of furlough have been seen as a bit of a kind of giveaway as to how tricky the government thinks the economy will still be at the moment in time when it's extending it to. So so that could be a sign of how uh, things will take a little longer to get back to, to normal than, than we might hope. He said, didn't he, I, I, I'm going to go long, I think was the expression he used, which is a bit different to last year, isn't it, where it was Sunak really, he really wanted to sort of pull that support away, didn't he, and kept having to extend it at the last minute. Definitely. And I think that was one of the, the biggest criticisms of the Chancellor last year and really weakened uh, this brand of Rishi Sunak in that he kept saying that he was going to end furlough, take it away. It came up with a job, less generous job support scheme to replace it. But ultimately, all of that had to be scrapped when things really kind of went downhill fast in the in the autumn with rapid growth in coronavirus infections, having to extend that out. And, and he's done so again. So perhaps having learned lessons from that time. And the politics of it are interesting, aren't they? Keir Starmer attacked him partly for, as you say, not not having much to say about individual people, about the poorest in society, about inequality, about lots of issues that were barely mentioned. But but he also tried to nail Sunak for his decisions or his his lobbying last autumn about things like the circuit breaker lockdown. He was seen, wasn't he, as one of those pushing against some of the toughest lockdown measures, which with hindsight doesn't look like a great judgment. Labour's got a bit of a challenge in responding to this budget in that much of its framing of it has been around, you know, where is this budget? What are you doing? Why aren't you doing it soon enough? Like back in January, when we entered lockdown again, Labour was calling for an immediate budget to be brought forward. Many of the measures that are announced today are the types of things that Labour had been pushing for, targeted support for businesses, extensions in furlough, and then gradually phasing out. So so it's a tricky one for Labour to respond to when they their main arguments uh, with the Conservatives have been around timing uh, rather than around the extent of the vision of the, of the support being required. I think the, the Tory conflict may be the more interesting one to, to look at, which is you know, in itself an interesting thing to say, given the state of our politics. But the increases in business tax being fundamentally against the principles of many more right-wing Tory MPs, and then also freezing uh, income tax thresholds to raise billions of pounds kind of comes close to the Tory manifesto promise not to increase taxes on income, national insurance and VAT. It, it doesn't break that pledge, but perhaps it sort of runs close to the spirit of it. And whether you know some backbench Tories will be happy with that as a, as a way of balancing the books is going to be an interesting conflict to still play out. And it sort of struck me that he was burying Osbornism in a way because those corporation tax cuts and those those freezes in the personal allowance were were sort of central policies of, of the sort of Osborne Cameron era, weren't they really? Yeah, one for the neoliberal economist, the Laffer curve is most definitely dead uh, in that this policy aim is you know going to supposedly raise £17 billion pounds, um, per year for the Exchequer by the time that it's a uh, it's increased by the end of this parliament. So, you know, Osborne having kicked off uh, gradual reductions in the rate of corporation tax from uh, above 28% and to its current position of 19%, 
as, as I said earlier, you know, this is first increase in corporation tax since the 1970s. Um, so, you know, that one way direction of travel is has now uh, been thrown by the wayside with the view that you actually need this money for, for spending on public services and uh, to address this uh, issue with the public finances from uh, the budget deficit. Yeah, as well, some of those spending cuts, I think. He also extended the stamp duty holiday, didn't he, Richard, that, that, that Osborne Cameronism is alive and well in, when it comes to the housing market, it seems, and introduced another something a bit like the help to buy scheme, as far as I could tell. Definitely, the uh, yeah, definitely that area is alive and well, stoking stoking demand in the housing market straight out of the Osborne playbook in reigniting the ninety five percent rate mortgages um, for you know predominantly aimed at first time buyers, um, and then also stamp duty costing you know an, an more than a billion pounds again to push out the the amount of time that that tax break is in place. Uh, until the summer, and then gradually only returning it to its uh, its usual levels by the autumn. It's it's a step that he will say is required because you don't want to have a crash in the housing market during a pandemic. However, you've seen house prices rocketing on away, which was exactly what um, the critics said when he first instituted this stamp duty holiday that you're completely erasing the point of it by putting up the value of homes and it, it become more unaffordable. Richard, there weren't many rabbits out of the hat, were there? But um, there was this this amazing uh, super deduction, he called it. That's quite a big policy, isn't it? It's quite expensive. It is indeed. But, you know, as far as rabbits out of the hat go, it's not particularly kind of, you know, attention grabbing front page stuff. It's one for the for more policy nerds, but will certainly be appreciated by business owners. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. But yeah, 130 percent up from deduction on on capital investment, you know, such as plant and machinery, office space, factory lines and things like that. It's uh, it's 10 times more generous than what was in place before. It's expected to cost the government about 27 billion pounds in total. So despite being quite a kind of niche sounding policy, it is incredibly important um, and is aimed at getting business investment going again once we come out of the pandemic. I mean, the, there are hopes that there's a lot of pent-up saving from people working from home and not uh, spending as much in shops because obviously they're closed. Uh, but when it comes to you know making this recovery sustainable, business investment will be required. That was very much what was missing from the 2008 financial crisis recovery. One of the reasons why we had such poor productivity growth. If this does deliver... It could be a good thing. But yes, it comes with a huge price tag, £27 billion in in total. And before you go, Richard, you were telling us before we started recording that you've been talking to business owners in Liverpool today. There was an awful lot of levelling up chat in this budget, wasn't there? So so we've got the new Treasury campus in Darlington. We've got the infrastructure bank in Leeds and, and you know, whole, these free ports, which is sort of spread around the place. There's, there's a, a big sense that what the government wants to do is convince all those voters that came over to them at the last election that there's there's something in it for them. There is indeed, yeah. Um, there was shout outs for particular towns across the country, the new billion pounds in funding uh, to, to help regenerate local local areas. Uh, as, as you mentioned there, the uh, the National Infrastructure Bank in Leeds and the, the Treasury Economics Campus in, in Darlington uh, and, and Freeport. So as we were saying, speaking to leaders in Liverpool, uh, they're due to get one of these free ports, special economic zones where lower taxes and customs arrangements apply. And the idea is that more activity takes place within them. You know, some economists question whether they do actually do what's stated on the tin and whether just move activity from one place to another. But I guess the Treasury's argument would be that's entirely the point in that we want more activity in these places. So it, it could be a positive thing. 
for for communities that have felt a, a lack of um, you know sharing the prosperity of the nation recently. But I think there are more fundamental challenges for this leveling up agenda that critics will come at. You know, not enough devolution. Uh, where is the funding for local authorities in all of this when local authorities are having to whack up council tax rates, uh, which is going to hurt people uh, in, in the poorest areas. Uh, and, you know, councils are, are particularly struggling from a drop in revenue when the high street is so battered during the pandemic. So, there is a lot of announcements being made in the budget that attempts to address these areas, but whether it is what's required to meet that pledge to, to level up the nation, to you know balance the, the prosperity across all parts of the country, um, I guess that remains to be seen. All right, Richard, we better let you go. There's quite a lot to analyse, isn't there? And Rishi Sunak's very helpfully jazzed up Budget Day by sticking a press conference in at five o'clock to, to make our day even busier than it would otherwise be. But thanks ever so much for sparing the time. Thanks, Richard. Thanks so much. After the break, I'll be looking to the current state of the union and we'll head to Wales to hear how the country's coping so far with Brexit. We'll be right back. Ready to pop the question? The jewellers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Heather Stewart. Now, Nicola Sturgeon is today facing calls to resign as First Minister after we learned that the Scottish Government was warned by lawyers that evidence of a potentially unlawful conflict of interest inside the government was extremely concerning. She started giving evidence to the committee investigating the Alex Salmond inquiry earlier this morning. Her supporters will hope that at the end of this investigation, Sturgeon will be cleared of any wrongdoing and they can turn their focus to those all-important Holyrood elections coming up in May. Her supporters will hope that at the end of this investigation, Sturgeon will be cleared of any wrongdoing and they can turn their focus to those all-important Holyrood elections coming up in May. Sturgeon has already put Westminster on notice. She says she'll hold an advisory referendum on independence if the SNP wins a majority in the Holyrood elections, regardless of whether the Prime Minister gives it his blessing. Some senior Conservatives, including Cabinet Office Minister Michael Gove, have worried for a long time about this possibility, warning Boris Johnson he needs to come up with a plan to fight back against Sturgeon. So he set up a union unit, which has hit some bumps in the road lately with two of its leaders leaving within two weeks of each other. So can Johnson really hug Scotland close, or will his plans be derailed by the chaos in number 10? I put this to Nicola McEwen, the co-director of the Centre on Constitutional Change at Edinburgh University, and Andrew Jimson, Conservative home contributor and Boris Johnson biographer. Nicola, Andrew, thank you very much for joining me. Um, 
Andrew, there's been a lot of interest. It's a sort of classic Westminster bubble story. But there's a, a bit of a lot of interest in the last couple of weeks about the various reorganisations of Boris Johnson's union units. It is one of those Westminster bubble stories. But the issue itself is is a very important one. And I think he's probably starting to realise very important to Boris Johnson, isn't it? It's incredibly important. If he's the prime minister who loses the union um, with Scotland, which has existed since 1707, it would be a complete catastrophe for his reputation and all the things that he will reckon he started to achieve on vaccination and on Brexit will count for nothing. He'll take over from Lord North as the worst prime minister in British history. So he is absolutely got to focus on this and got to sort out how to persuade enough Scots that it's actually worth remaining in the United Kingdom. And Nicola, there has begun to be a sense, has there in Scotland, that there's a, a kind of inevitability now about, certainly about the idea of another referendum. Is is that fair? I'm not sure, actually, because there are clearly legal obstacles in the way of that. A lot of power and authority still lies with the Westminster Parliament and ultimately with the Prime Minister um, about whether or not a referendum takes place. And sometimes I actually find that the sense of inevitability comes from more, I guess, journalists and media and politicians and based outside of Scotland, where because the debate about the union, about independence, has been gaining some speed and gaining some ground, uh, then there, there tends to be a sense that it is inevitable. And I don't think it is inevitable at all. There are clearly increases. year and a half and there are some big issues created by uh, things like Brexit but actually and some of those complicate the case for independence as much as they create the political opportunities for it so I don't think it's inevitable at all. And of course we've had this extraordinary sort of melodrama psychodrama I'm not sure quite what to call it but but this this extraordinary um, clash haven't we between Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon presumably that plays into the mood too. Perhaps. I mean, I think it's too early to tell whether that will have um, a lasting impact on either the SNP as a political party or on uh, the wider cause of independence or indeed on the authority of the devolved institutions, which have started to come into uh, that particular discussion as well. Uh, But it's too early to tell whether that will have a lasting impact. Andrew, do you think Boris Johnson has previously spent very much time or political energy thinking about this subject? He obviously popped up to Scotland for his little camping holiday last year, didn't he? But is is he a, a natural unionist or, or, you know, is this something he'll, he'll have been, have, have spent much time thinking about, do you think? Michael Gove obviously spends a lot of time thinking about it. He's, he's not popular with the Scots um, and he knows that. And the, the abbreviated camping holiday in Wester Ross was the first attempt to deal with that. But there is something very, very off-putting. Now, Boris Johnson can't bear being disliked. He will want to, he obviously won't talk around um, very fervent nationalists, but he will hope that middle-of-the-road Scots, he can persuade them that he's not the devil incarnate, that he's not some ghastly twerp off a grouse moor who's walked in and is trying to order them around, and that the Scottish tradition of, of ethical socialism is not quite as foreign to him, as you might think, but he's obviously got an enormous amount of ground to make up. Yeah, Nicola, is there any sense the Conservatives are any more popular than, uh, well, Ruth Davidson's a different kettle of fish, isn't she? But, you know, what what do you think the sense is about the feeling about the Conservatives north of the border at the moment? Well, I mean, I think there's no doubt that the Conservative Party have been able to position themselves as staunch defenders of the union, as, as fervently opposed to 
Scottish independence, and that has produced electoral benefits for them to a point. It has helped them to marginalise the Labour Party in Scotland. The Labour Party, remember, was the, the overwhelmingly dominant party and is now a shadow of its former self. And so the polarisation of the debate within Scotland um, around the question of independence versus union has definitely suited uh, the Conservative Party and it's also, of course, suited uh, the SNP as well. Um, but I, I, I think that the UK Prime Minister will have to do uh, somewhat more than having the odd camping holiday in, in Scotland um, if he is to sort of try to appeal to what is a soft middle in the support for or against independence. But that soft middle is a middle that tends to favour devolution, that it, it finds the Scottish Parliament an important institution within the UK, may not be sure about a move to independence, but likes, in general, self-government, likes the Scottish Parliament. And some of the, the decisions that the Prime Minister has made have been seen to be damaging to the status and authority of the Scottish Parliament, have seen to be challenging devolution and sometimes recentralising authority in Westminster, taking back control, if you like, within the United Kingdom, not just vis-a-vis -vis the European Union. And that's probably not going to be uh, the way to secure uh, Scotland's future within the United Kingdom. Yeah, Andrew, do you think that's been a, a bit that's been sort of missing from the post-Brexit settlement, really, that a, a lot of these powers that have come back seem to have come back to Westminster rather than anything else? And it does seem to be the instinct of the Boris Johnson government to be quite centralising. Should there be some sort of new offer to Scotland, do you think, as, as part of the sort of post-Brexit moment? I think Boris Johnson will be very wary of making a new offer. Um, I know he's dispensed with the services of Luke Graham, who was running his union unit at number 10. But Luke Graham said quite rightly the other day that the strategy of giving the nationalists more power is as effective as giving a bully your lunch money. It will never satisfy their desires and will entrap you in a prison of fear and imagine that the answer to this is to make more concessions to the nationalists. But it is a very, very difficult problem because he knows, I mean, Boris Johnson in London was running a devolved administration there and he was continually attacking Cameron and making clear that he was standing up for London. And that's what the the, the, Tory, the, the Conservatives and Unionists in in Scotland obviously need to do that to Westminster to show that they're standing up for Scotland. Yes, although Boris Johnson hasn't always felt that about referenda, it has to be said. But um, Nicola, you talked at the beginning about the obstacles to another referendum. W were we to get a uh, an SNP majority at Holyrood after the May elections? That's not a foregone conclusion, of course. But but were we to go to get that? How would Nicola Sturgeon go about trying to to put pressure on the government? Do you think to to hold another referendum? And and what powers does she have in her hands? Not not many, right? Other than sort of moral suasion. Well, I'm I'm not a a lawyer. Um, so, I mean, the Scottish government last time around never conceded that they couldn't hold a referendum. What they did concede was that they couldn't hold the referendum with the question that they had. Um, and it was important then and it's important now um, that they try to get a process that is seen as legitimate and that would, where the result would be honoured. So I think that will still B, um, if the SNP emerges as the victor of the elections, if there is a parliamentary majority for independence parties, and um, that they will try to use that to put political pressure um, on the Prime Minister to 
give that concession um, to transfer the authority. Whether that will work or not is is, is a whole other issue. But they, I think there are, I mean, the, the SNP has talked about plans B, C and D, and there are sort of some other options, but n- none of them are as appealing as the one where the result would be recognised, the process would be recognised as a legitimate process. Um, and so it, it's, it's a difficult issue for the SNP. On the other hand, for as long as the issue comes about who gets to decide whether or not there should be a referendum, whether or not it's for the people of Scotland to decide rather than the Prime Minister, as the discourse goes, then that's a relatively easy let out for the SNP in campaign terms, because it means that you can avoid addressing some of the many difficult and complex issues um, that would confront an independent Scotland in this post-Brexit and COVID and hopefully post-COVID world. And so it's a a very different context from 2014 for a whole host of reasons. But focusing on the process issue just now um, means that some of the bigger issues of substance um, maybe don't get the attention that they merit. And Andrew, is your sense that that Boris Johnson would fight quite hard on the process issue, that he that he would be likely to try and be quite combative and, and continue to reject any calls for a referendum, even if there is an SNP majority at Holyrood again? He doesn't want to hold out hope to the SNP that, the, that they'll actually get a referendum in the near future, because if they think they'll get one, then they don't really have to worry too much about other things. In the Labour Party, Labour voters in parts of England and Wales, as well as Scotland got fed up with being taken for granted by the Labour Party, which is one reason why the Conservatives were so successful in in the Midlands and in the north of England at the last election. Um, The longer the SNP is in power, the more likely it is that Scottish voters will start to feel, well, this is just a boondoggle for professional politicians in suits in Edinburgh, and they're, they're still ignoring our problems in Glasgow or wherever it might be. Um... I mean, he has any number of motives for not conceding a referendum, actually. I think we're going to hear a lot, a lot. I think we'll see more cabinet ministers in Scotland and I think we'll see more discussion of, you know, different little bits and pieces of spending that that, that are going on there too. Um, Nicola, Andrew mentioned Labour there. Obviously, you know, you've got a different Labour leader in England, also in Scotland as of last weekend. Um, and Labour is sort of considering whether it should have a different position, isn't it, on, on federalism or on the union? It, it, what, what difference does it, will it make sort of where Labour puts itself in, in this debate? So obviously, it's obviously desperate to sort of rebuild some of that ground it lost post-2014. I think it will make a big difference. And and one of the risks, I think, for the Prime Minister is that if he positions himself as a very assertive unionist, not just talking up the benefits of the UK in terms of defence and so on and, and all of those areas that the UK Parliament is responsible for under devolution, but also if he starts to be more interventionist in areas that are devolved. Remember, the Internal Market Act gave the UK government spending powers so that it could intervene more in devolved areas, perhaps bypassing uh, the devolved institutions, then that can be quite provocative and seen as a challenge, not just to the SNP or to independence, but to devolution and the institutions of devolution itself. And then the risk is that, um, as happened with the Internal Market Act and some of the Brexit legislation, the Labour Party becomes part of a kind of alliance to defend devolution even though it is deeply opposed to independence. But it's definitely 
difficult for Labour here. As long as the debate is polarised between independence um, and opposition to independence, then it's difficult for them to carve out a distinctive position. They can't out-nationalist the nationalists, they can't out-unionist the Conservatives. Um, and so the, the bigger challenge in that respect is for the Labour Party, I think. Mm, and a, and a, bit, a bit like the period, the sort of 2017 to 19 period where Labour, in, in Westminster politics terms, Labour was very squeezed between, you know, very pro-Brexit and very anti-Brexit, sort of wanted to be neither quite and, and you know, ended, ended up sort of losing out altogether. Um, Andrew, just to sort of, finish us off it's it's not just the status of scotland is it that feels a bit as if it might be in flux as a as a result or in the aftermath of brexit you know northern ireland potentially problematic with the with the implementation of the protocol and so on make every, every, making everyone think about the status of northern ireland even the welsh are starting to wonder about independence post brexit perhaps post covid as well it would be such an irony wouldn't it if if by sort of pulling at the thread by going ahead with brexit boris johnson ended up sort of un, unraveling it would. I think, he, I think even both his friends and his critics would say he's not a man of inflexible principle. He will try to find a way through these very, very difficult problems by sort of fighting a war of movement, actually, and sometimes disconcerting his friends as well as his enemies. But and I, I think he, he's also capable of making quite sort of, of putting himself at the centre of the story. And he likes drama. And so or, or if, if things get worse in either as far as Northern Ireland's place in the United Kingdom is concerned or Scotland's, he will at least be marching towards the sound of the gunfire. Well, one hopes not actual gunfire. He'll, he'll be there. He'll be very, very engaged. And he will sometimes surprise his friends as well as his, as well as his enemies by the expedience to which he resorts as he tries not to be the prime minister who wrecked the who got Brexit done, but who then wrecked the United Kingdom. I think we're going to be uh, talking and thinking about these issues lots more in the weeks and months to come. But um, Nicola McEwen and Andrew Jimson, thank you very much. For anyone wanting to understand better what exactly is going on between Nicola Sturgeon and her former friend Alex Salmond, listen to Wednesday's episode of our sister podcast Today in Focus, where Libby Brooks breaks it down. Now, since the Brexit transition period ended in December, there have been some unfortunate hold-ups. Food has been spoilt, long lines of delayed lorries at the borders and a build-up of paperwork have made the transition quite difficult to manage, especially for some sectors. In Wales, the food and drink industry is worth over £7 billion. As production is heavily integrated within hospitality, businesses and supermarkets, these delays have caused serious consequences and in some aspects have stopped Welsh producers from being competitive in the EU. My colleague Stephen Morris spoke to the Chief Executive of the Welsh Food and Drinks Federation, Peter Robertson, about the impact Brexit has had on the food industry. From time to time, working from home means sometimes there may be a few technical difficulties. So the audio isn't perfect, but the quality of the conversation is still top-notch. Pete, lovely to have you on the show. Can I ask when you first noticed there were issues after Brexit happened? As an industry and as a sector, it became very clear effectively immediately after the vote that there were going to be some challenges. The food and drink supply chain is highly integrated across Europe. Europe's the largest export market and obviously a huge importer as well. And we get a third of our food from Europe. So from that point of view, clearly the 40-year trading arrangement was clearly going to create challenges of some sort. What particular problems is Wales facing at the moment? 
In terms of the Welsh food and drink industry, I suppose the important thing to, to say is it's one of the biggest employers in Wales, Welsh food and drink manufacturing. employs over 24,000 people. Their businesses are across the entirety of Wales. So is the, the nature of the Welsh food and drink sector is 85% of it is small and medium-sized businesses. And of those small and medium-sized businesses, I would imagine 75% of them are probably micro-businesses or less than 10 people. So what that means is when we talk about logistics, for example, there's a term that you'll, you'll have come across, which is groupage, which is the combining of different deliveries into one delivery to make it economic to ship goods from, from A to B, basically. When you're a smaller business, you're more likely to rely on that groupage. And as a consequence, Welsh food and drink sectors had to be more creative in finding new markets, uh, which is you've seen a significant increase in the business to consumer uh, web based retailing going on in Wales and Wales, Wales businesses working together to try and find solutions. We heard you telling the Welsh Affairs Committee that it's easier for the EU to import land from New Zealand than from Wales because of Brexit. Would you explain that to us? Why is that the case? There's a, a veterinary agreement between different trading parties and New Zealand have a, a veterinary agreement that means that uh, because the, the EU requires less che physical checks as the lamb arrives. So in terms of in UK agreement, because it's a third country, 20% of physical checks will happen and 100% of documentary checks will happen. In terms of New Zealand, because of this veterinary agreement, those number of checks is 20 times less, only 1% of deliveries are checked. Ideally, obviously, the UK would look to get to that level. In terms of the documentary checks, they're actually the same. So it's very much about the flow of goods, the movement of goods, and, and the, the disruption in terms of the inbound supply chain into the EU. Are there any other examples of, of things that were once easy to trade and now aren't? There are many. It's not necessarily just we, we've got cases of people who used to send samples, for example, to Scandinavia. And when you're building and exporting a food and drink business, samples are very important. People touch and smell and taste your product, and that's where, one of the reasons they buy it. And those samples used to cost £30 to, to send to Sweden, and they now cost £85. There are many situations where there are challenges of, of that nature. I wonder what the mood is among food and drink producers. How concerned are they? Is there great fears at the moment? I think that's, a, that's very much a case-by-case -case basis. There are a, a significant number of food producers that it depends where your business has been pointing. If your business has been pointing into the food service and hospitality sector, let's not forget, I know we talk a lot about hospitality, but there's all the suppliers into hospitality as well who have had significant, in some cases, 80% of their business disappeared overnight. So to put the EU exit and the additional requirements on top of that, for some businesses has been nigh on overwhelming. If you're a UK-based supply chain, then maybe you've had a stronger performance. But fundamentally, the business environment for a food and drink manufacturer now has never been more complex, never been more challenging, and is set to increase even more so. How is the industry trying to adapt in these very difficult times? The one thing that, that I would say from a positive perspective is Wales has got a track record of growth in the food and drink sector. It's grown 30% in the last six years. And it actually was a huge success story of the Welsh economy and a huge driver for growth, innovation and, you know, and high application of high technology moving forward. And I would like to think that once the dust settles and the dust at some stage will settle, then we, we can move forward as a situation to be a thriving and a sector where is a real showcase for what Wales can do as a nation. My colleague Stephen Morris talking to Peter Robinson there, and that's all from us this week. 
In Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra, guest host Raphael Baer speaks to the former US ambassador to NATO, Nicholas Burns, about the task on Biden's hands to reintegrate with America's closest allies after four years of self-inflicted isolation. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Richard Partington, Stephen Morris, Andrew Jimson, Nicola McEwen, and Peter Robinson. The producer is Amy Leibovitz. I'm Heather Stewart. Please look after yourself. And thanks, as always, for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.